Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, because it's the week of Thanksgiving, the topic of the show is love. It's giving and receiving love because it's one of the ways that we can become better humans, even in a wild year like this one. I thought it'd be a good time to just bring things back to center and talk about love and community with the guy who's an expert on those things. Uh, we're talking about the most reverend Michael B. Curry, who's been presiding bishop and presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church is just fine. <laughs> there you go. Presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church since 2015 and the first African-American who's led the denomination. And he's a huge advocate for human rights, author of five books, including a new one that is the main topic for today called Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Good to be with you. Did you write Love is the Way knowing there was a pandemic coming or or in the midst (laughs) of that or it was already there and you just happened to hit the timing just right? Ah, yes, I saw into the future. No, I had no idea. <laughs> but, I mean, I literally, I mean, literally had no idea. Uh, a pandemic was about the last thing on my mind. I mean, I saw the movie Contagion, but that was about the extent of my knowledge. Uh, and so, no, um, I, I was very, I have to admit, I was aware of um, the divisions in American society. Um, and to some extent, global community. I mean, some of what's going on here is going on around the globe. I mean, um, that th- th- there's there's something in the air. There's just something in the atmosphere and in the times. So I was aware of that, um, but uh, I had no idea of a pandemic um, or or that the depth of racial divisions would get revealed and unearthed in in um, in just new ways. Um, but like the pandemic, the virus had been around before we knew it. And, and the reality, our divisions have been around, um, uh, whether we paid attention to them or not. Um, but the added stress, I mean, this is like a perfect storm. Um, the added stress and everything that goes on um, when you have a biological pandemic and basically you have a whole culture, a whole society and a global community now um, impacted by this. There's... No, there's no escaping. <laughs> there's no out. There's this is Sarge. No exit on this one. We're all in it. Um, some affected more, some less, but we're all in it. And that I hadn't even remotely seen. So uh, it was it was just uh, just ordained good timing, I, I think. I uh, guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, you know, and the funny thing is and and I, I hesitated in, initially in writing the book, one, because it's a memoir reflection on love. Um, and it really did come out of conversations with my publishers after I had done a book of sermons um, that, um, I mean, they noticed and others noticed there is a consistent theme of love that comes through that that was in the sermons. And it that's not anything new for me. Now, I had to admit, I didn't invent it. Moses was talking about it a long time ago. Jesus <laughs> was talking about it. And even Cicero was talking about it. So I didn't invent this. I mean, um, it's been around a while. But um, they asked me, where is that that emphasis on the power of love as a pragmatic reality in our lives, as well as a value for living them? Where does that come from for me? We know it comes from religious tradition, but where does that come from for Michael Curry? And that's what led to a set of memoir reflections um, on how I actually had exper- have experienced the power of love and how it's affected my life, hopefully shaped it for the good. And how, you know, on my good days, I try to live that out. And on the other days, I know I haven't. But at least I got a standard to live by. I know where I'm trying to go. <laughs> yeah, you've got a directional a directional compass there. Yeah. I, I think about love from a, a religious perspective. You've got, you know, the, the love of God. You've got love for your fellow man. You've got love for yourself. You've got love for, you know, your direct family members and your parents and your, your significant others and whatever else. Is there some sort of... of way of, of, of understanding which love we're dealing with or even what love is when you have all these different ways of, of using the word? You know, it, it, part of it is the frustration of the, the limitation of the English language. We have one word for love and, and that's it. I mean, love. 
Um, And you have to use the same word on a soap opera that you do when the Pope is speaking or the Dalai Lama is speaking. I mean, we just have one word. Um, And um, the New Testament, both Hebrew has multiple words and Greek um, has multiple words for love. And the New Testament in particular used three of those words, um, eros, agape, and philia. Philia, you know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, kind of fraternal love. Um, eros is romantic love. So if you're talking about romantic love, that's eros. And then agape, um, which is probably the highest form, if you will, of love. That's unselfish, sacrificial love that really does seek the well-being of the other. They are all related. They all have their the same source, at least in the biblical tradition. sees all love ultimately has its source um, in the God who the Bible says is love, um, which is a stunning declaration that religious tradition often overlooks, that the Bible actually says God is love, which means the the love that we know, authentic love that we know um, in any context, ultimately has its source in God. That doesn't mean God's making us love, but the capacity to love, the flow of love, the energies of love, those are the energies that come from the creator of everything that is, including every one of us. And that is a step. That is a game changing realization. And to learn ways of living in that flow of energy, which is the energy of God, the energy of love, um, that has the capacity to help us even through pandemic times when at Thanksgiving we probably can't be with our loved ones and family and eat the turkey and all the stuff that we normally do because we love them so much we're going to have to abstain from doing a lot of the stuff we normally do. That's, you know, I mean, th- that has that kind of love energy has the capacity to help us even through that time. I, that taxonomy is so important. I never thought about the fact that we only have one word for it, but it, it's it's a bit awkward sometimes. I, I have some, you know, beautiful women friends, and, and I will say I, I love you. But it's so easy for someone to oh, yeah. misconstrue that, right? I'm happily yeah. married. I don't mess around and all that. Um, but I still say it because they're my close friends and they know the meaning of they that. Know but if you hear that, you're like, oh, what does that mean? And then same yeah. thing. You, you tell a guy, hey, I love you, right? Yeah. It's clearly brotherly love, but I can't say I brotherly love you because we don't have a word for that. <laughs> right, right. I mean, have you thought of, you know, promoting three words for love in the English language? I mean, you think you can do that? You're, you're a powerful guy. I, yeah, I don't think I'm that powerful. I got a feeling the language. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but you know, there are differences. I have to admit um, that when I tell other guys, love you, I'll say, love you. Love your brother. I say that too, because I you yeah. don't want to imply the amorous thing, because that's not it's where you're going exactly. with it, right? Yeah. So your inflection, there are ways to, you know, we don't have other words, but, but there are, I mean, and I'll say that to, you know, if a females in and to be clear that I'm not saying I love you in a romantic, this isn't yeah. talking about love you, <laughs> love you. You know, it yeah. does give it a little different nuance. But unfortunately, we don't have. You know, French has there are multiple. We just don't. We just have the one word love. <laughs> I, I had a, a, a one of the people um, who used to work for me, and she'd send me a a black heart on text. And I'm like, what is that? that and mean? she said, black is like a business suit. So that's business love. And just just like, I, I oh, love what you're doing, um, but I don't want to use the red heart because that would imply things that, you know, would be inappropriate. And, and I'm like, right. okay, so you can okay. use the black heart. That's fair enough. I I don't know that that would universally communicate, but okay. <laughs> no, I mean, well, once she told me, I was like, oh, I get it. So I say, hey, well, why don't we do this in the business? And she's like, black heart. Okay, that, that's cool. And, and it's, it's so funny because love is, is so many nuances to yeah. it. Yeah, um, and it's contextual. It 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 you know if I mean I used to to tell folks to to show you how context changes and affects everything. I mean if you know we're in church or in a religious service and I say I love you, well that means one thing. But if we're having dinner, and you know there's a violinist playing in the background and we're having wine and there's candlelight and I say I love you, that's a whole different. You see, what I mean even the context can shape the nuance of 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 love. When you tell your grandmother, I love you, your mother, I love you, your father, or, you know, or family members, 
that's a little easier because the context of your relationship defines what you mean by love. But right. when it's friends and colleagues, it's a little bit, it's different. It's, it's, it, the context doesn't help to shape it unless you're in church or something, you know, some religious involvement yeah. um, um, or, or, or if something has happened, we're saying I love you. Yeah. Uh, is a way of support and they know that you know what i mean the context right. and shape it but you're right it's uh there's a lot of times i'd, I'd like to say it I, i'm feeling love but i don't really say it especially because i'm a ceo right you yeah, know you, you be, yeah you can get sued that you're like hey I, i'm like i you know there's nothing here uh but you yeah. just, you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable and all that so uh, that's probably an area where you know you, you well, can work on not not going over a boundary there but i, I could probably say it more often than i do well, I, some, I very often will say, God love you. Oh, you know, that's, a, you. And that's that, a good one. And that kind of, okay. okay, talking about God is kind of a blessing on the way, you know what I mean? God love you. <laughs> that's, that doesn't have any connotation of anything except it invokes love, <laughs> concern for the other, mm-hmm. kind of a way of blessing, but doesn't imply anything else except that. <laughs> You focus mostly in in your book on, uh, as you'd expect, because you know you're a religious leader. But you know, you're uh-huh. focusing on this idea of love that looks outward, the agape. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the the sensation of that love? Like, okay, when you you love someone romantically, you like there's a feeling in your heart and all that stuff. But when you're at your highest state of, of agape, what does it feel like? You know, I mean, it's it's ironic. One of the passages in the New Testament that um, the, the love passage from Paul, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. I remember being in high school. That was like in our book of great poetry. And, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was there along with Shakespearean sonnets and stuff. And there was First Corinthians 13. Well, the interesting thing about that, and I talk about it in the book, is that, you know, Paul actually wrote it. He wasn't thinking about a wedding although it applies to relationships. He was thinking about, he was dealing with a church that was dividing itself into factions. Um, and um, and some of those were sociological, the rich were putting down the poor. I mean, it was, a, it was a church that was in a mess and it was operating out of self-interest. And the principle of love, he says at one point, now I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes into the, the what is the poetry of love that he sees love as the unselfish way that makes human community possible. Because apart from the unselfish way, human community is not possible. Selfishness does not build community. I don't care how you cut it. It doesn't do it. It destroys community. And it applies to a a marriage and a relationship because if you're in a relationship and it if you and I are in a relationship and it's all about either one of us, then it's not going to be about the two of us. You see what I'm getting at? Um, so that on some level, um, I've got to be concerned with um, not just myself, but with you. And and if you do that, are concerned not just with yourself, but with me, if we do that, then then something new begins to emerge. That relationship between the two of us in giving ourselves to each other creates a new actual reality. Um, that's what we're getting at in marriages. It ain't about a license. I mean, it's not about, you know what I mean? It is about a new relationship that's actually creating, I mean, we use words like family or uh, we don't have a lot of good words, but something new is created where there is space for two uh, to dwell in one relationship. That's, that's powerful stuff. Now, if, if you apply, then that's in romantic love. Mm-hmm. And what has happened there is what begins as eros over time, if it's real, grows into agape. Interesting in a relationship. Yeah, yeah, in a relationship. And I mean, I've seen it, you know, I mean, I was a pastor, a parish pastor um, for years before I became a bishop, and you know, which is a slightly different job in terms of what you do day to day. Um but I walked with a lot of folk through a lot of sickness and a lot of hardship and a lot of death. And I got to tell you, man, when I've seen couples, people who have been married for, you know, 50 years, these folk, um, and one of them goes on to glory. It is like the other one has lost part of them, their, their body. Mm-hmm. And that's because 
they've moved beyond just mere romantic attraction, which has its place. I mean, that's how the human species, I mean, perpetuates. If there was no such yeah. thing as romantic attraction, I don't think we would be perpetuating ourselves uh, that's just right. out of will. So, I mean, you know, the Lord knew what he was doing with the biology. So that part's there. But but there's a point at which you, you grow on top of that. You build on that and a relationship emerges. And it's a pretty awesome thing to behold when you see it. And that's where you have self-giving a self-giving love that that's not about the obliteration of the self. It's actually a heightening of the self. I mean, you know, the truth is um, when I'm concerned about we, that includes me. But if all I'm concerned about me, that does not include you necessarily. That we embraces me and you. Me is just all about me. And that's not that doesn't create a relationship. Uh, one of the benefits of you know having uh, had your own parish for so long is is you see codependent relationships. You see every kind of bad right. relationship when you're working with people, yes. right? Yeah. How do people know when they've taken the sacrificial aspect of agape love and gone too far and become codependent? It, it seems like that's a real common problem these days. It is, and that's a human it, because it's it's just so easy to <laughs> kind of slop into it. Um, the question is. Um, and and I believe this is true with our rela- any relationship, including a relationship with God. Is it loving? Is it liberating? Is it life giving? Mm. If it's missing one of those things, then something could be out of kilter. Is it loving? Does it does it set you free to be, so to speak? Is it liberating? Is it is is it life giving? does it make you better or at least somehow you see what I'm saying? Is it well, loving? That, that's a great checklist. I, I mean, yeah. if your relationship is working, you get those. If it's not, you need to work on the relationship. You some more. need to work on those. Right. And that's some wisdom yeah. right there. Yeah. Right. yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's true of a relationship with God. If, 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 if a faith relationship isn't loving, liberating and life giving, then you got to work on that. Cause there's something's missing. Um, you know, I mean, that's how religion can go off and go wrong. You get that God-fearing idea, because if you're fearful of God and God is love, that might not be liberating in a certain way, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the irony, unfortunately, this is another this is another classic example where our language, English, all we have is the word fear. Even in the Hebrew, there's nuance on that word. It actually means respect. I mean, there's mm. there's a there's a nuance. Uh, article you add on it and and it means fear because I'm scared you're going to kill me. But there's another way. It's fear that is honor. I honor you. I respect you. You see mm. what I mean? And what a difference. Fear, God respecting, it, no one no one rejects that, but God fearing, a lot of people are like, I don't really want that. So there's a mistranslation, basically. Yeah. Yeah. English is uh, wonderful in Shakespeare's hands, but in common everyday language, it's pretty basic. No. <laughs> All right, I, I got to ask you this: Do they have like a special voice training to be a bishop? To be a bishop, because you you have this resonant, amazing voice. Are you did you me? always have that, or did you grow that? I didn't know I had it, but it's. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, you you speak with weight. I, I I'm taking voice lessons uh, from oh, uh, uh, Roger Love, who was just on the show. And I listen to how people talk now because of that, and and I see you talking, and and you're you, you've you've got it, like you, you it, it's interesting. It might just be practice. I, I don't. I guess it's all those years of preaching in a parish. I guess well, that must be I what it no is. No idea. Okay. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me. Thank you. Gosh. Well, yeah, I hope there might be some sort of training class that, like, okay, all right, here, here's how you stand in front of a group of thousands of people and just move them. That, like you got to hold your yeah. breath or something. I, I was going to ask for the secrets. So, but there is an old joke, old preacher's joke, about somebody found a preacher's manuscript in the pulpit and, and saw in the notes that the preacher had written, weak point, shout louder. So sometimes <laughs> there's... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> did you see this happening when you were a young man? Did, did you always know that you'd be a man of the church? No. No. I mean, well, again, my father was an ordained minister. He was an ordained priest. Um, you know, his daddy had been a Baptist preacher, I mean, going back. So there was, that was in the mix, but, um, no, when I went off to school, 
I wasn't really thinking about being ordained. Um, I was, you know, it, it, I had, I mean, my father, um, he was really good with us in, in a lot of respects because he didn't have any expectations about, didn't have any, there was no, we didn't have to do anything specific. We just had to do whatever, he used to say, whatever you do, make sure you help somebody along the way. Whatever you do, that's your job. Um, and wow. whatever field you enter into, make sure the world's better because you did that. <laughs> you know, that that's your job. So that service in some, there was no question I was going to do something that was, um, and I had, when I was in high school, I had, um, I like to say I volunteered for Bobby Kennedy, uh, but that's a little bit more exalted than I licked envelopes and knocked on doors, uh, both for <laughs> Senate campaign and his presidential. So it wasn't quite an exalted position, but um, I, I really thought of, of entering public service in some way um, and was, you know, early in school was thinking about, you know, do I go to law school, you know, to do that and then, you know, getting government and that kind of stuff. Um, and I, you know, like you do when you're in college, you play around with all sorts of possibilities. I, I took a course um, that among the a number of readings, we actually read uh, Martin Luther King's, some of his writings, um, which led me to do a, a, an honors thesis. And I got to go to Boston College and read some of his theological papers. And that's when I started realizing, wait a minute, there are un, there's a variety of ways um, to make an impact for the good. And maybe this is kind of in your heritage and maybe this is your way. It was kind of all, that was where it began to kind of take shape for me. And, um, you know, that was uh, what, 50 years ago or something like that. It was a long time ago. And like my Angelo says, it wouldn't take nothing from a journey now. Um, it, it's not always been easy, but I mean, I really do believe that authentic religious faith has the capacity to help us, um, like like the old spiritual says, climb Jacob's ladder. Every rung goes higher, higher. That that's that that religion or anything else that pulls you down. Uh, uh-uh, that's not the God way. The God way is that Jacob's ladder. You know that spiritual we are climbing. Jacob's ladder, every rung goes higher, higher. I mean, that's, and um, and I really believe that. And um, our religious traditions at their best, if they are loving, liberating, and life-giving, then that smells of God to me. And when they're not, then I'm not sure. <laughs> when I was a, a young man, I was... Uh very uh, science and engineering motivated. And um, I actually was raised by an atheist family. And at some point along the way, I said, well, uh, hey, dad, you can't really prove or not prove it. So I think I'm just going to be a bit more agnostic uh, because I'm, you know, I I see some weird stuff out there that that I can't explain. And rather than saying it didn't exist because I can't explain it, I'm just going to say, you know, there must be some reason people pray, even though I never really tried it. Um, You know, I, I was a teenager and stuff like that. Uh, and I meditate and I, you know, have my own spiritual practice and all that now. Uh, and I, cause I find it works, you know, <laughs> regardless of, it does. It's, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's been beta tested for centuries. It works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was actually, it was a bone of contention for a long time in, in you know, my own, my own family uh, about that, where, you know, how, how dare you, it's not scientific. And, and I'm like, Hey, I don't worship at the altar of science. Although I believe in science, I, you know, I worship at the altar of whatever's going to work. Uh, and yeah. I'd like to study why it works. Do you see that we're, you know, we're we're studying more and more neuroscience, and we're looking at love. And when someone's in a state of love, we know how their heartbeat changes. We actually know how the field around their heart, shaped like a donut, almost like a halo, but yeah. uh, how it it turns. You know, it, and it's measurable to a certain point. Like you, you can is. spot two people in love with numbers and all that stuff. Do you think we're ever going to quantify ourselves to, to, you know, be able to to look at someone's heart or their brain or something? Be like, this is a person who's who's got agape. This is a person who's, you know, connected to God. I don't know. Or, or will we get a pill that uh, once you take the pill, after about fifteen minutes, you'll love, you'll be in love or something? I, I think that's MDMA, I, isn't it? Uh huh. I think that's MDMA, isn't it? MDMA, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So using, in a therapeutic setting, I don't mean in illegal. A therapeutic <laughs> setting. Right, in a yeah. clinical setting. But yeah, you know, I mean, I just, part of that, what, what that tells me uh, about us, th- th- it's not an accident. It, it's, 
and again, this I'm not making a scientific statement now. I'm going one step beyond where science can go. But but the science is pointing us in the direction. There's a reason that human beings are more functional the more they are loved. There's a reason that children grow and develop. And I don't mean mushy love. Sometimes love sets boundaries and you know does yeah. all you know and all that stuff. But there's a reason. I mean, there's a reason just on a simple level, it feels good. When you know you're loved and you're being loved, it, whether it's romantic or or your mother, I mean, you know, whatever it is. I mean, there's yeah. a reason that feels good and there's a reason it feels lousy. Yes, we were made that way. That's not just accidental biology. I, now I got to go from biology to theology. I want to suggest that God, who the Bible says is love, made human beings in his image which means the God who is love made us as creatures of love, to be loved, to love, and that we are at our best when we live out of the very energies of love because we are actually reflecting the DNA of our creator. And that's, I mean, that's why all, all the chemical stuff, why whatever it, the dopamine, whatever it is in the brain, that what, that's why, that, that, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. I mean, it is science in one sense. <clears throat> people have been experiencing this as long as they've been people. Now, I don't know what Neanderthals were. I'm not quite sure about that. But um, I have no idea what their emotional life was. But you see that on some level, even in the animal world, people with, I mean, it, it, my, my wife and daughters are like, they are like serious cat people. Right. And, and so our Facebook thing, we get all these cat, you know, if you start looking at stuff, the algorithm set it up. So we got tons of cats. And I have to admit, I kind of like looking at them sometimes. I don't tell them that, but I do. I sometimes <laughs> look at them because they had these wonderful, I mean, horrible stories of these poor kittens who have been abandoned on the side of the road and they're afraid, or dogs, they're afraid of every, And that these people take them in and, you know, it doesn't work all the time. But a lot of the times, if you feed them, show them love, even an animal that's that's been abused, Sometimes they're afraid to trust you, but they will. Now I wouldn't try that with a lion out in the wool, out in the forest, yeah. or anything like that. But um, the truth is, I mean, you can see the hand. There's a there's a poet. I can't remember the poet who said, "The hand that made us is divine." Mm. And 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 I that gosh, Dave, that is true. Which is why the chemicals go off and and stuff fires in the brain. Um, when you're in love um, and when you know you are loved or um, respect is not the right word. That's not strong enough. <coughs> when you're being honored as a, as a human being, you know, <coughs> I mean, one of the most horrible things that we can do to anybody is to demean them as a human being. And to put them down, I mean, it, that is one of the most, because that is crushing, that is that is trying to crush the spirit within them. And, and if you ever crush that completely, you take away hope. And if you take away hope, then it's all gone. But as long as there's even a sprig of hope, just a sprig of it, the, the, the spirit in them, because we were made by love to love and to be loved. And we are at our best when we live in love. How do you turn love back on when someone has attempted to crush your hope? Oh, it, it takes work. And sometimes you can't do it by yourself. And, and sometimes you need to get um, what the religious tradition has called soul friends. <laughs> Mm, what a great word. You know, soul friends. And a soul friend can be a therapist. I mean, I'm not saying it has to be a religious yeah. word, but the, the point is someone or some or a group, community, support, whatever, who can walk with you and help you give voice to the inner journey and inner struggles and whatever the inner pain and maybe begin to help and coach you to find the healing that's within yourself, to coach you into it, not telling you what to do necessarily. It's coaching you um, to almost mentoring you, coaching, mentoring, midwifing. Oh, there you go. Help, 
Yeah, that's it. It's midwifing to help the the energies of love that are there in you, even if they've been suppressed. The spirit is there to help that to rise out and to come up and more and more begin to be the dominant um, spirit in your life. And that takes habit. It has to become habit and and and, and eventually um, habit becomes way of life. And, you know, you run into moments when it gets buffeted and pushed back. But but the point is, if you can unleash that spirit that's within, that's what a soul friend does. That's what a good therapist does. That's what a good counselor does. They help to coach you, midwife, um, the, the child of love that's in you and release it and let it live. Wow. And man, I mean, it's real. It's there. It's. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the Plato thing, like uh, all learning is remembering. You already know. Uh, now, I mean, I don't want to push that too far, but <laughs> but I do believe this within us. The hand that made us is divine. It's there in us. We were Howard Thurman, who um, he was he was uh, well, he, he was a remarkable guy, um, a kind of a mystic um, black guy, mystic uh, born around the turn of the last century. And um, he, in his adult life, he had been um, head of the chapel at Howard University and then later at Boston. And then um, later was the uh, pastor and one of the founders of, it was an interfaith church. I can't, oh Lord, I forget the name of the church. Anyway, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But he would, he's got a lot of writings on meditation and he really was a mystic. Um, growing up in the rural South and, and um, on Jim Crow and all that. Anyway, he talked up and he was a man. He was King's mentor. Um, Dr. King carried Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, right. with him wherever he went. And in one of his books, I can't remember which one he talks about. it. He's talking about his grandmother who used to uh, tell him about the old slave preachers during slavery. Um, one of the sermons, I said this one preacher, he always had whatever, he, whatever the sermon was about, you know, that was about it. But he always had the same ending at the end of the sermon. And he, he looked at, at the folk who were all slaves at the time. And he said, you are not slaves. You are not what this world calls you. You are the children of God. Wow. It is unleashing the child of God. That's where the energy of love and life actually is. And we've all got it, man. Wow, that, that's so powerful. Well, I want to ask you a, a tough question. Uh, so if, if the way a person can deal with this and someone tried to take away your hope and, and you develop some soul friends and, and you work as a community to heal, and certainly I've done that, did that myself. You know, I, I think most people who've had any kind of tough patches in their life end up yeah. you know, having help from wherever it comes from. Yeah. When you're dealing with... Uh, of systemic oppression. And I, clearly we have racial issues in the U.S., but we've also seen it all over all over the planet. You know, yeah. there's a government or a people really doing their very best to take away hope in a whole nother culture, right? Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about war crimes. We're talking about just horrible stuff. How do you bring hope and love back to a people uh, when they've been in a situation like that? In a parallel way to an individual. Parallel. Yep. Um, Let me go back to the, um, I mean, in in my own story. Yeah. Um, I grew up with a father who was a civil rights worker. He was a pastor, was doing civil rights stuff. Both, you know, so I always grew up assuming, you know, if your church, you're supposed to do, you, you know, you do spirituality and social justice all wrapped up. They come together, right? Yeah. It's like, that's what Jesus did. That's what we do. So, okay. So that's, so that was kind of the world in which, and this was this, I grew up in the old black communities in the late fifties and through the sixties. And then I went off to college. Um, and, and that, and there was an evolution because when I was younger, um, the, the reality of slavery still lingered through segregation in the consciousness of the community. It really did. Um, 
there were, and you know, people like Franz Fanon, who wrote The Wretched of the Earth, and, and a lot of people who looked at the dynamics of oppression, talk about, um, psychologists talk about internalizing the oppression, where the, the oppressed actually internalize the systems and the dynamics of oppression into themselves. And so you get these patterns of self-hatred um, and self-loathing, and it comes out in ways that eventually you try to mimic the wider system or culture or whatever it is yeah. and finish your own. So by the late 60s, when the Civil Rights Movement got really going, in the early days, it didn't deal with this. It, it didn't deal with it directly. But as time went on, there was a realization that, yeah, so laws have to be changed. Yeah, right. economic arrangements have to be changed. All that stuff has to happen. But there was a spiritual awakening that happened in the late 60s when it was, it was the young Turks who were saying, wait a minute, just getting our civil rights isn't enough. What about our humanity? Yeah. And that's where you get the black is beautiful kind of stuff beginning to, and it went into, there was a, a period of that. What that tells me is it's a very similar kind of thing to having how you overcome negativity in your own life. I mean, you've got to deal with it. You've got to coach, you've got to, one, you, you can't ignore the outward circumstances that created right. it. You got to do something about it, but that's not enough. You've got to engage the inner spirit and you've got to, because ultimately it's going to be that inner spirit that's going to give you the capacity to make it over the long haul. If you just deal with the outer circumstances, that's not enough. And so I saw, and I think about it growing up in the black community. I mean, you know, where all of a sudden, um, you know, when I was growing up, um, the darker you were was considered um, not great. Mm. You know, you yeah. needed to, the lighter you were. I mean, black people come in all hues and complexions, but but light skin was considered beauty. That was the, where the beauty, which again is is taking the cue from the wider culture. Right. Um, you know, and and so eventually the black is beautiful kind of you know went overboard. Of course, these things go a little bit overboard. But eventually it norms out where you realize beauty is beauty. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's where you don't fall for the color game. Um, I, I was I had a friend um, from Rwanda who said the same pattern of internalized oppression played out in Rwanda where um, one group was more favored because they were light skinned. One tribe because they were lighter of lighter complexion. Mm -hmm. um, facial features were more they weren't European, but 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 at least pointed in that direction. Where the other um, were clearly more African, um, even looking more West African than East African, if you will. Right. And he said some of that was behind the struggle between Tutsi and Hutu that led to genocide. When the Hutu, the more dark-skinned, more African-esque tribe, rose up against the Tutsi, who had tended toward a little bit more light skin or or more chiseled features, more East African. He said that internalized oppression led, fed into what became genocide. Wow. And Franz Fanon in Wretched of the Earth talks about this. I mean, he and he was talking about it from the perspective of Algeria and the Algerian revolution. He was a psychiatrist. And he was talking about it from that perspective. That's why the inner self must be engaged as well as the outer self. It's not just, it's not enough just to change the outward laws, you got to change the laws of the heart. Um, it's got to both, it's both have to happen. And I think that's true with racial heat, justice and healing in our culture. It's got to be both. We, we've got to re-envision, um, re-imagine um, policing. I was in a, 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 a conference and was talking to folk and they said, well, what's your vision for uh, law enforcement and policing? I said, my vision for law enforcement is we want our police officers and our sheriffs, we want them to be the good Samaritans of the parable of the good Samaritan and the new. That's their, that's their noble calling. You see what I mean? I mean, yeah. that, that is, and many of them are that, you know what I mean? I mean, Absolutely. you know, when you need them, they are that. <laughs> they are that good Samaritan who helps somebody. That's what they are. Call them, help them to be that. Um, and and that's what we want. That's what the community wants. It's not a. That's reimagining. Um, but that is both a matter of outward changes, um, in policies, procedures, and all that stuff, and inward dispositions. We must pay attention to the spirit of people who deal with crime all the time, because sometimes 
when that's what you're constantly dealing with, it gets internalized into you. You see what I mean? We got to, and we don't pay attention to their spirits, their souls. I mean, these are people. Um, and so you need both. Anyway, I'm going off on it, but you see what I'm getting at. It, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it, it does take both. And, and the more you deal with people who hate you, the easier it is to hate them back instead of to, yeah. to feel love. And uh, the, the police officers I've spoken with, um, you know, just in, in personal conversations, ones yeah. I know well enough, they're feeling beat down. They are feeling beaten up. Yeah, they're people. Yeah, I mean they're, and that's that's where our systems fail because our systems take solely an outward focus and do not pay attention to both the inward focus and outward of the of police of the community. <laughs> you see what I mean? And everybody yeah. gets stuck. It's like we turn into rats on a wheel and we just keep running. We're stuck and we just. We can't get off and we just keep stuck and we keep, I'm mixing metaphors, but playing old tapes, we keep, you know, and, and, and nothing changes until something has to break through. A new paradigm has to emerge. We have to stop and say, wait a minute. It isn't, the system is controlling us. Our patterns of behavior are controlling us. We need to go back to first principles. <laughs> What is law enforcement about at, the, at its core? Well, what is it really about? Um, and I really would suggest it is good Samaritans. It's That's helping. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a helping profession. How do we help them do that? Maintain law and order, appropriate law and order. But how do we help them do that? How do we give them the resources for when there's a mental health call that they, they, that they have the support of mental health professionals so that you don't have just a law enforcement, a mental health situation being dealt with as a law enforcement situation. You see what I'm saying? That, Nothing good is going to come of that. I, I mean, no, I, you know, I've dealt with crazy people. You, you have to. And, and <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing you can do if, if you're trained to you know, stop someone from, from doing something because it, yeah. it, it's not rational by definition. And I, right. always, I always feel bad for, for both sides when there's, there's a problem like that because crazy person needs help. And, and the law enforcement guys exactly. are going, you know. Uh, yeah, what do you yeah. do? And of course, they're always concerned. Whatever they do, either they're going to get hurt or they're going to get you know, thrown in jail for for doing stuff. And I don't see a good win the way it's set up. So yeah. the way it's set up, it, it it's not a good win. You're right. And so we can change. We got to change the. It's got to be a holistic approach to changing the whole paradigm, so that our law enforcement folk can do what they do, so that the community can be in relationship with them. I mean, it and it can be done. Now, you have a chapter in your book called The Real E, Plurib e Pluribus Unum, uh -huh. the, Do I Have to Love Even My Enemy? Um, all right, let's talk about that from the, the aspect of policing or for anyone who's, who's you know, being oppressed in any of the situations we've talked about. It, is it possible and is this something that you should do to, to, to work towards love, towards people that are doing bad things? Yes. Yeah. How does that work? That doesn't mean you're not working for change at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a big asterisk there, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you yeah. turn on love for someone who's punching you, for instance? Well, you may not start. <laughs> well, I, I do think um, you got you you have to pray your way through it, and you have to be part of a community that's committed to living that way. I mean, yeah, so it's the community aspect is is the key there. Yeah, I really do. I think. I mean, that was true in the civil rights. I mean, you have to be part. Most of us can't do that on our own by ourselves. I mean, you have to be a hell of a human being, uh, like MLK or or someone. Uh, you know, even it, they, you know, had their moments. I mean, you know, I mean, even they. Um, it's it's uh, you know, I mean, it's just sort of you know, if you hit me, I, I'm going to think two alternatives: fight or flight. If yeah. um, I think I can take you, I'll fight. If I think you're going to take me, I'm going to run. But you know, that's that's sort of the. I don't know, the, almost a natural reaction. It, it is um, natural. It, yeah, it's just kind of, and some of that's biological necessity when we were in the woods or in the forest or whatever. That made sense. Um, uh, and yet um, the nonviolent way, which is the way of love, that's a third way. And that third way, um, if you move beyond thinking of love as eros, and begin to think of love agape, seeking the good and the well-being of the other as well as yourself. 
not excluding yourself, but not excluding the other, then the goal of love is to seek the greatest good that is possible in that situation. That doesn't mean you turn it into the kingdom of God on earth, but it means you get as close as you can. And what do I, I may not be able to completely change this person's mind or whatever, but can I find some good that I can do in this situation, in this context, um, that might, and this is where King and Gandhi, uh, both of them said that, that might prick the conscience of the person who's doing the wrong, it might prick their conscience and change their heart. It might not, because you, you don't have control over that. Right. But you, you're seeking the good for them as well, because they are victims of the system that they may be upholding, that may be oppressing or putting you down. They are as much, they are victims. They just don't know it. Um, right, so, right. Yeah. And so your goal is to, ch- to do the change that needs to happen, but to do the change in a way that it makes it possible for somebody to grow. Um, in uh, John, um, um, oh Lord, um, oh, Congressman John Lewis, um, mm-hmm. John Lewis, um, yeah. in, um, in one of the freedom rides, um, was beaten up um, in South Carolina. I think it was in Sharon, j- just across the North Carolina border. And um, and this would have been in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, and he was beaten pretty bad. Not as bad as he was later on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but, but pretty bad. And years later, when he was in Congress, um, one of the men who participated in beating him on that freedom ride um, came to his office to apologize. Wow. Ask his forgiveness. It actually did happen. I know that doesn't happen all the time. I know that. I mean, okay. But yeah. it, it, but it can happen more than we think. In one lifetime too, which is, which is remarkable for, exactly. for that guy who did it. Exactly. What? Your study of, of love in your book, it, it, it's really profound because in order to facilitate the, the brotherly love that, that's there, it requires a community, right? And it, it's more than one person. And I feel like, okay, Eros, we got that. Okay, you can find a partner. That's what Tinder is for, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you get you get that. that. That's like the lowest hanging fruit. But then yeah. you need like an operating system or a framework to have the community there. And that is a role that churches have long held that, you know, veterans of foreign war or, you know, the, the various, you know, societies that were, where people would go to do that, or, you know, heck knitting circles for lack of a better, yes. better word. Yes. And a lot of that has just evaporated and gone away. And, and I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that, that having a profound lack of that for a brief period during the pandemic is going to make people come out and say, you know what, um, I'm going to go, whether it's join a church or just join a, a civic a community thing. I'm going to go regularly and get to know the people there, even if I don't know them that well. I mean, you yeah. have that when you're in college, you have that when you're in high school, it, it's built in. And then you, they toss you out in the real world, you get a partner and it's all about Eros and, you know, maybe some community at work. But uh, I'm, I'm definitely seeing now that I'm a little older and wiser, you know, the, the wisdom of having uh, churches in communities yeah. or just any of those organized multi-generational things yeah. Out there. Do you think? Do you think it's going to happen when when we finally kind of come out of the lockdown and people are going to be more civic minded just because they they got to fill up their brotherly love cups? I I hope so. Okay. I, I, you I, know, I think it might get there. I hope yeah. so because I think, like I said, I know I need. I mean, I yeah, it's. I mean, I feel it in myself. Um, and I hear other. I'm having conversations with people about it. <laughs> it's it's there is um. We are not disembodied spirits. We are embodied spirit. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? We are body and soul, so to speak, all mixed up together. I mean, that, that, that's, a, and, 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 and somehow we need both to be whole. <laughs> um, and this has been an experience of the absence of the ways of community that we were used to. <laughs> Um, and finding alternatives, trying to be creative. I mean, I've, I've, you know, told church folk, I said, look, if you hide, stay in touch with each other. Stay in touch. It's the building block. 
is a, maybe only be the first building block, but it's the building block of human community. It's the one thing we can do. We may not get to the higher rungs of human community, but stay in touch. If you're high tech, Zoom. If you're low tech, text. If you're no text, call. But 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 whatever it is, stay in touch. Keep that human contact. Don't let anybody be alone. Don't let anybody. I mean, there's wisdom in the Jewish tradition that when someone dies, someone always sits with the body. See, that's telling us something. That's ancient wisdom. Ancient folk figured something out. Nobody's supposed to be alone. Yeah. It is not good that the human one be alone. That That's God talking in the Bible. It's not, I didn't make y'all for that. I made you to be together. I hope as whenever this ends or evolve slowly ends, however it ends with not a bang, but a whimper, I suppose. Um, I, I hope that there will be a re-energizing and a re-engaging um, of human community um, uh, on some deeper levels because we have had an experience of it not working when we don't have that. Profound words, uh, and I, I, I really, I think, I think we will experience that. that that's what I'm, I'm reading here. There, there's a yearning that yeah. was, it was too quiet to hear because we were too busy. And now that everyone's at home and not driving around to do and all that, that it's 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 coming out and and it'll be a different I mean a, a different situation. I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think we are going to see a lot more people spending a little bit more quality time with people they don't know that well. Yeah. And that, so now we've got arrows kind of hacked, and then we've got brotherly love. Uh, okay, we've got our community for that, but for people to make that transition into that love for all mankind, you know, for the the whole universe, love love for God. What's the mechanism to make that transition once I've, say, tackled those first two kinds of love? Is that an individual transformation? Is that a do groups of people do that at the same time? How does that work? Well, I, I do think that, and this is another realization from this time in pandemic for me, although it was there before. I mean, I, I'm not saying anything new. It's just it's crystallized for me Yeah, that, that the three intersecting dimensions of my life, dimension one, my relationship with God, dimension two, or um, my relationship with others, that's community, human community. Mm -hmm. And three, my relationship with me, that those three, intersecting worlds and realities that if I'm intentional about each one, one thing I've learned is I can't live de facto, take nurturing a relationship with God. I got to, it's got to be intentional. I got to do something. I can't live de facto having a relationship in community with others. And I can't live de facto in a relationship with me. I mean, and, and there's that story in the Bible in the new Testament where Jesus where the lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest law in the law of Moses? And Jesus reaches back and quotes Moses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He says, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of self. <laughs> it is in those three intersecting worlds of having to learn to be intentional. And, and I've, I've, I've adopted kind of an internal practical discipline each day. I mean, I do my morning prayer stuff and exercise and everything. I get up early, so I'm an early morning person. I peter out as the day goes on, but early mm -hmm. morning, I'm I'm there. And so I do my exercise, do my prayer time, and um, and then catch up on the news and all that kind of stuff between five and seven, seven thirty or so. And that's kind of kind of my time. And one of the things that I've started doing in in this pandemic time is saying, okay, how am I being intentional to nurture my relationship with God? Well, prayer time and reading scripture and all that kind of stuff, that's part of it. How am I going to do that today? And that, that part's pretty easy because I have a routine. How am I going to do that in human community? For others, not just for myself, for others. What am I going to do today for human community? I mean, and, and there, there could be a variety of things, but just one thing, even if it's just sending an email to somebody. <laughs> um or calling somebody, I mean, it, 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 or it could be, you know, 
I mean, there's a soup kitchen here that I'm big on and, you know, try doing something for them that particular day. But, I mean, whatever it is. I mean, and then what am I going to do for Michael? Because Michael needs care, too. Community needs care. And I need to nurture that relationship with God. God, human community, self. That is, I mean, that, that's not me. That's Jesus of Nazareth talking. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. That's, that's it. And that practice of that as a daily practice, discipline, practice, whatever the right word is, um, just to be intentional. I used to, when I was bishop of North Carolina, a retired bishop who had been the bishop of Mississippi, um, just a wonderful guy, a guy named Chip Marble, um, who, had, who, who really, who was one of those moral voices in Mississippi um, as a white man for what was just and, and humane and decent, both in terms of race relations and in terms of LGBTQ rights and humanity. And he, he was doing this in Mississippi. Um, uh, remarkable. Anyway, he retired and came and lived in North Carolina and was helping me out um, in the diocese here. And Chip used to say, nothing good ever changes or happens without intentionality. Mm. And, and, you know, I think about Dr. King said, you know, human progress doesn't happen on wheels of inevitability. It happens by intentionality. And so for me to be intentional about now, my day can change because things are going to happen that I hadn't anticipated. That's OK. That's normal. Yeah. But say, you know, how am I going to nurture my relationship with God today, with others and with myself? And that grid. You fill in the blanks. <laughs> Well, I, I gotta, I, I gotta say, um, great, great job on the bishoping, because uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm 48 almost, and that uh, love God, love thyself, love others never actually made that much sense until you just explained it the way you explained oh. it. So, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so those are the, the three. It's just a re-expression of the three kinds of love, and and yeah, being exactly. intentional about all three of those seems like a really good daily practice uh, when you spell it out that way, and it maybe loses a little bit in the translation into that simple, you know, three kind of three word piece of advice. But the way you explain that, um, that works, whether you're secular, whether you're uh, religious or uh, a Christian or whatever you are, those right. practices are universal. And uh, all right. I, I think, I think I, I think I learned a couple of things I can use here in, in my daily practice, which is, which is really cool. So thank you. Oh, that's awesome, brother. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have anything else about love that you think our listeners should know? Something you haven't said. It's not always easy. Mm. But it is worthy. It is worth the effort. If if I must make a mistake, I hope and pray it will always be because I tried to be loving. What powerful words uh, for the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, mm -hmm. Bishop Michael, thank you for this time on Bulletproof Radio. Uh, you're, a, you're a man of wisdom, and I appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Well, you are incredible, and you it's a, it's, it, it has been an honor to talk to you. It really has, brother. <laughs> now I see why you do what you do. You're good at it. Uh, I, I get, get to learn it. every day. I mean, how could yeah. I not? Well, you made a new fan out of me. <laughs> well, likewise, uh, I uh, I will post uh, your book on the website on social media and things like that. And guys, if if it's Thanksgiving, just if you got one thing out of this interview, look yourself and others and God, the universe, whatever. Get those three things lined up. Do one thing every day for each yeah. of those things to make it a, just a little bit better. And I'm pretty sure things will change in your life in a positive way, and maybe things around you will change too. And you know, you've uh, you've certainly studied it for more years than I have, but man, you uh, you crystallized some stuff for me, and, and true true gratitude for that. Thank you, brother. God bless you, man. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. 
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.